we have to maintain a sense of hope, hope that we can make a difference as individuals and that hope that we can make a difference collectively. But if we start with the big grandiose, let's just, you know, we've got to fix the whole system. We've got to do all the stuff like right now, all of it. That's exhausting. But what I can do is start with one kid in my classroom, with one book in my home, um, and then expand that. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Rabbi Rachel Jackson, Rabbi of Hendersonville, North Carolina at Agudas Israel Synagogue, and the teacher, the elementary school teacher that influenced me a lot. I don't want to say the most because that's hard, um, but influenced me a lot was Mrs. Kilgard in third grade. And please don't ask me to spell it. I have no idea. It's got K's and J's and L's. Um, And she just, she allowed me to look at the world in a completely new and awe-based way. And it has stuck with me for the last 30 years. Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And my, one of my most influential elementary school teachers was Jean Rob Robido. She was my second and third grade teacher. And um, I actually nicknamed her Saint Jean because her back part of her head right here would turn, would slowly gray and turn white. And I said to her apparently that it looked like a halo. And so from that point on, everyone <laughs> called her Saint Jean. And she was one of my absolute favorite teachers. She was absolutely amazing. So this week, I'm very excited uh, that a very uh, dear friend of mine has agreed to join us. And so I want to read a little bio and introduce her. So our guest today is the Cato College of Education Director of Diversity and Inclusion and Associate Professor of Elementary Education and Educational Psychology in the Department of Reading and Elementary Education at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Her research and publications include preparing pre-service and server teachers, culturally responsive teaching self-efficacy, anti-racism curriculum development, culturally responsive classroom management, and exploring how caregivers and teachers discuss race with children. She's published in the Journal of Urban Education, Teachers College Record, and other high-tier journals. She's a former elementary school teacher who now works with teachers, schools, districts, and organizations around the country to revise their instruction and curriculum to be more anti-racism oriented. Currently, she's working on her academic book and a children's book, to assist caregivers and teachers to have conversations about race with children. She co-designed and is the director of the four-course Anti-Racism and Urban Education Graduate Certificate Program. She lives in the Charlotte area area with her husband and two young boys. I'm very happy to introduce my colleague and friend, Dr. Tia Starker-Glass. Hi, good morning. Oh, sorry. So who is, which elementary school teacher do uh, do you want to tell us about? So I I was torn between two, but um, thinking about um, the alignment and connection to our conversation today, I'm going to go back to my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Swallow, who was a complete science nerd, and that spoke to the nerdiness in me. Um, And so I remember fondly the ways that he would connect science to all of our content. But then he also saw me as a little Black girl. And so he would always slide me different reports or, you know, give me different um, uh, people in Black history that were also kind of aligned to what we were learning in class. And so I appreciate him seeing me. Um, in a way that other teachers hadn't, in a way to connect me to what I was learning. Cool. That, that gave me goosebumps. But yeah. It totally, that is the magic of elementary school teachers, I think. Not to diminish anything from uh, later teachers, right? I, I think we all certainly have had very influential um, middle school, high school, college and beyond teachers. But there's Definitely. something about being seen when you're mm-hmm. little that just gives you that foundation to to know yourself as you move into those really weird years absolutely that, i do agree uh, so tia i'm curious you're what you just explained to us about this teacher 
I'm kind of putting you on the spot, so I'm sorry, but can you think of any examples of things that he did for you that really helped you? Because you mentioned the fact that he slid you different things as a, and recognized you as a little black girl. So I would love, mm-hmm. do you, can you think of anything that you could? Well, yeah, I, think I remember I remember learning about uh, George Washington Carver. You know, I don't remember necessarily the science topics that we were learning about. Yeah, I I don't know if it was like the botany. I remember like the square thing. Let me not talk science. Um, (laughs) There was something science related that we were learning. But then he gave me, you know, this is, you know, a while ago, this is pre-internet. So, you know, he had to find it in a book and make a copy of it for me. And, you know, but he just gave me like, just very casually too, never made a big deal about it. Just slid me a copy, like the little copy that he had made, he had made about George Washington Carver. Mm-hmm. I went home and I was like, read this to me, mom and dad, please. Like yeah. what help me explore and unpack who this guy is. And do you feel like that, that really had a profound impact on you as you went through your schooling? And like, even as, as a science, or as a teacher educator now, elementary teacher educator now, I mean, yeah, I I really didn't think about it. I was in graduate school um, before I really acknowledged, before I really, yeah, acknowledged like the power that he gave me by acknowledging me as a as a black girl in his class. You know, I'm from San Diego, so my my schools were always very diverse, um, but there were always still smaller percentages of of black kids in the schools that I went right. to. So, you know, just that small effort that he took to just, you know, find something in a book, make a copy of it and give it to me. Spoke volumes. Yeah. Well, I love the emphasis you put on the fact is pre-internet. I think that's important Yes, context because it took much more effort than it is to just type in a name right now. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I think that speaks to also him validating me through action, which means, you know, at some point at dinner or after school or whatever, he thought of me. And then he thought of me to then act on, you know, I have a little black girl who I can see is very smart and inquisitive. And so let me give her more. Um, So he thought of me, then he, you know, sought out the book, made the copy, and then gave it to me. Cool. I think you're right. I think it's that how do we go from thinking about to acting with? Yes. Um, or acting on behalf of, or, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to act, but it's that um, making that leap, right? I mean, there's a, I'm blanking on so many of the sayings right now, but the idea of one small deed is greater than the grandest thought, you you can think as many thoughts as you want, but an action actually makes it. You know? I agree. And and in I Judaism, we're we're all about what what are you doing, right? Mm-hmm. We you're you're rewarded or not rewarded. I don't want to say punished, but punished. I suppose uh, that's not my theology um, for your actions. And it's not about, mm-hmm. well, you know, like the president years ago or a president years ago said, I sinned in my heart. Ah, Judaism's like, that's nice. Like, it doesn't really matter. What did you do? Um, and I think that's why I love this term, um, which for so many of us is is new. And I want to make a little caveat that part of my heart is saying, I'm sorry that it's so new for all of us. But at the same time, I'm glad that it's actually existing. And that term is anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's unfortunate that it's taken this long for so many people to be aware of of this idea. But at least it's happening. So that's that's one part. Um, and the other the other thought that I had is anti-racist means like you're active. It's an active. Absolutely. It's an active. It's not a passive. I'm just not racist. Right. Which is. You know, it's a hands off. Like I didn't do anything, and it's like, no, what am I doing to be actively this way? Um, so I'd just love to hear your your thoughts on, you know, uh, people in 2020 finally getting this concept, and then what the concept of anti racist means to you. Uh, that, yeah, that's that's absolutely it. It is, you know, 
a few years ago was all the, you know, my thoughts and prayers as opposed to, no, let's change policy. Let's, <laughs> let's vote. Let's do stuff. And, you know, that is still valid today. And so um, I help folks understand that there is a difference between, you know, racist and non-racist and then anti-racist, you know, because you can be blatantly racist, but most folks kind of fall into that realm of non-racist where, you know, they can see racist acts happening, but they don't want to, you know, rock the boat or I don't want to embarrass. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so racism still exists. And that person who was the target of that racism now has been harmed. Right. And so what happened in my own experience, um, I get people kind of after the fact that will say, you know, Tia, that was really wrong what such and such said to you. I don't need you to tell me that after the fact. I knew it when I felt it. I needed you to say something right then. So in that moment, non-racist, you know, that person was very non-racist because they saw it and did nothing about it. Um, As opposed to, you know, situations where someone is, you know, being microaggressive or just blatantly racist and someone steps up and says, nope, that's not okay. You know, that is very inappropriate. I need you to just, you know, go leave, whatever the case may be. Um, And so there is an action. It's an action. You know, if we think about it in the context of teachers, when we know the curriculum that we're teaching is not serving all of our students, especially our black and brown students, Mm -hmm. that is being non-racist. But when you see it and then you decide to do something about it, modify your curriculum, expand it, take it out, you know, whatever those, you know, that curriculum that is marginalizing kids, you know, that is being anti-racist. That's where I want um, my students and really just all adults. I want them to get to that point of being anti-racist because our kids are experiencing race and racism starting at a young age, you know, I have young kids. And so I, I need them to understand the difference for themselves, but then the kids that they play with and the parents that live with them, I need them to also be anti-racist so that they can protect my boys as they are, you know, well, pre-pandemic out on play dates and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Adam's here. Hi, I'm so sorry. That's all right. <laughs> We explained that you're like provost now. You've, you're the provost, right? Yes. <laughs> I am. Grace given, grace received. So no I, no apologies necessary. Still still not convinced this is a good idea. Sorry, I was almost... <laughs> no burning buildings though, right? Like your dream? Nope, nothing's on fire, but I was walking around with the fire marshal. Oh. <laughs> you got to stop dreaming about stuff like that. I've more worried that the zombie dream will now come true um in the face of sorry covid19 like a, a yes a student I, I, carrying I, covid and they are the zombie I, yeah. I told ian this this is this is these are the things i'm dreaming about right now fire, fire marshals and and covid zombie students yeah. um so yeah we have students moving in today so i'm sorry that was uh this has been part of the the deal they're moving in over the course of two and a half weeks uh, in order to get them socially distanced enough. Um, wow. Yeah, and stay that so, way. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> After they haven't seen their friends since, you know, March. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I'm really hoping all those parties happen far, far, far in the wheat fields. Yeah. Um, so two miles from town. From, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> They've, they've only got to go two miles. They can walk outside. Um, preferably, we'll provide buses. Um, <laughs> yeah, they will not be on campus. Um, okay. Okay. So anyway, so I'm supposed to answer what? Uh, who is an elementary school teacher who influenced me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, with your usual intro, oh, I, your name. With my usual intro. Yeah, we need your name. My name. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and your new title. Uh, no, no, I never use the title. Um, it it sounds so pompous and jackassy. Um, so my my name is Adam Pryor. Um, I'm a professor at Bethany <laughs> College in Lindsborg, Kansas. I mentioned that I'm a professor because another professor here listened to me and criticized me for saying that I'm a teacher. 
and I told her I was trying to be of the people and she told me nobody will ever believe that. Um, so I <laughs> welcome professor. I'm a I'm a professor at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. Uh, when I think about an elementary school teacher who influenced me, I, there are two. One is my my aunt, who was actually my fifth grade teacher, um, mostly because I, looking back, think she handled that situation with incredible grace. Um, and the other is my second grade teacher, who was terrifying, um, but in all the right ways that an elementary school teacher should be. Um, and I credit that if I have any organizational skills at all, it's probably because of her. Amazing. Okay. I I don't feel like I saw recess for like two months because I kept losing my math homework. And she was right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say about that. Well, and you mentioned your aunt. I, I will be remiss if I don't do this and we'll get in trouble. I've sorry, mom. She was my fourth grade <laughs> math teacher. So... <laughs> I had two teachers, my, my main teacher, and then she was like my math teacher. And so, mom, if you hear this episode, I love you very much. And I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know what St. Jean meant to me. So it's okay. They taught together, obviously. So it's okay. It's okay. So, it's okay. Anyway. Um, um, okay. Thank you. Yes. So, so Tia, I want to, um, and, and gentlemen, if I'm dominating the conversation, please jump in as usual. One of the things that you were just saying is part of the reason for being anti-racist is for everyone, that is, whether that's at the playground or in the grocery store, um, so that you know everyone can get along in one concept, right? That, uh, I don't want to say kumbaya, but that's the word that's coming to mind. I have kind of a, a personal question then. Okay. Um, personal for myself, too. Um, I live in Hendersonville currently, and Hendersonville is on the other side of the state, right? Not the other side, a couple hours away from Charlotte. Our demographics are 85% white, 10% black, and 5% Latinx. I'm rounding a little bit. The particular elementary school that my child goes to, there are three... He's coming into first grade, so I clearly have no idea what anyone looks like there because we're not in school. Um, but in kindergarten, last time we were there in February, he was, um, there were three kindergarten teachers, right? Three teachers, so three three classrooms of about 15 students each. So give or take 50, 50 kindergarten t- kids. Not a single one of them was black. Oh. Um, correct. <laughs> Whoa is right. Um, there's only a few elementary school here, s- schools here. This one happens to be a lottery-based system that teaches STEM. And so we applied to five different lotteries, and this is the one that we ended up in. Right? We, we applied for a Spanish emergent. Anyway, I don't need to go down that, that wormhole. My question is beyond talking Right. Because I, I can do as much talking as anyone or more. I can read appropriate books to him. How do we teach our children who aren't exposed to other cultures, who aren't exposed, who who in their daily life, again, thinking beyond the pandemic, that that is not the world that they're in? That, that my son doesn't have the opportunity to play with Black children. Mm-hmm. So looking for, because I know that in, in our listening audience, I'm not the only one who, who lives in a white bread world. And so how do but, but we want to be conscientious and conscious and raise our children and, and be for ourselves those mm-hmm. things. But where we live may not be, may not allow for that. So. So, uh, you know, there are several things um, that you can do. Um, Rudine Sims Bishop talks about, um, she's a literacy expert, and she talks about giving kids children's books that allows them to have windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. And so this idea that the libraries that we have in our homes, but then also that are at school, need to give children um, windows into the world, 
right? So that they can see people who are different, look different, think differently. Mm -hmm. It just exists differently, right? Um, Children also need to have mirrors. So they do need to see themselves and not in a monolith, right? So even diversity that exists among race, you know, in this context. But then also remembering this idea of a sliding glass door that we um, we step in to someone else's world, we step into their shoes, right? So that we are helping children build a sense of empathy and understanding others. Because what we don't want to happen is it becomes like this voyeurism. We just go in, oh, look, their life is so hard. Okay, let me go back home. Right. And so just this idea of a sliding glass door, like there is something that does divide us, but we are allowed to step in and step out um, so that we can see each other's worlds. We can build empathy. forgotten to help our children see um, the humanity in everyone um, to remind that to remind our kids that all people all children all adults deserve dignity mm-hmm. and we've kind of allowed fear to drive you know our actions if we don't know about someone they must be dangerous or you know just all the ways that we have um, isolated our children. And so, again, books are just a great way to start giving our kids different experiences to see what the world looks like. And, you know, unfortunately, when we look at um, the publishing industry, the majority of books um, are still written, children's books are still written by white folks, even when the books are about children of color. And so, we are seeing a small shift in that. You see more um, publishing companies owned by people of color. We're seeing more authorship by people of color. Um, and so that is just one one approach, right? We can start with our, our libraries um, that are both at home and at school. And, you know, even living in a bubble, you know, thinking about um, what you're allowing your children to watch, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are the apps and you know YouTube channels that you're allowing uh, your children to watch? And are they diverse? Right. So there are lots of movies and you know different ways that we can kind of broach the topic of diversity and allowing them to have those window experiences with the the media, the technology that our kids are using. So. Um, I've had to build this habit and it's been a little more difficult in the pandemic, but just making sure that I'm sitting down with my boys as they're watching whatever they're watching and just kind of sliding in little thoughts and, you know, just, just different ways that I can say like, oh, that was a kind thing to say, or, oh, that, that child is in a wheelchair. That's awesome. I wonder, you know, how they may have gotten, you know, how they've ended up in a wheelchair, you know, just helping them kind of think critically about what they're reading and what they're watching, kind of helping them unpack it because we're all being socialized. We are being socialized to think um, about people and, you know, in different ways. So we have to make sure that, you know, as my boys are being socialized, I'm helping them to be a critical thinker about what they're reading, about what they're watching. Uh, My son just came home, my older son, came home yesterday from a um, summer camp experience and he said, Donald Trump. And I was like, okay, so let's talk about like, (laughs) what did you learn? What did you learn at at the summer camp event about Donald Trump? And I just had to sit and listen because I wanted to, again, see how he was being socialized. What, What did those teachers communicate to him about who he was? And then again, just kind of expand his knowledge base about him. And I try to stay as neutral as possible, you know, but just this idea of, you know, kids are being socialized through the media, you know, at our churches, they're being socialized at school. 
they're being socialized when they're sitting there listening to our conversations and we think that they're playing with the Legos, they're still listening, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to make sure that we are exhibiting humanity and dignity about the people that we may be, you know, discussing or the shows that we're watching um, so that we can build uh, a capacity for empathy. So our kids can build a capacity for empathy um, for others. Beautiful. You mentioned about children's books, and I read in in, uh, in the introduction that you're writing one. So yeah. You, do you mind sharing a little bit, or or you're not there? Like, do you not want to go into much detail on that? Yeah. So I've I've actually got a couple in the works, but the, the one that is closest to being done essentially is about um, the boys. Like, I just really kind of journaled my experience in helping them understand who they are as Black boys um, so that they can see um, the richness in their history, but then also see themselves as smart and kind and goofy. And, you know, I just wanted them to, again, not be in this monolith that Black kids are only this way. Um, I wanted them to kind of expand the idea of what what Blackness is and then and who they are. And so we have the conversation about melanin, right? So I did slide in some science. Um, you, but, you know, just helping them understand that they're not Black because they uh, drank too much chocolate milk or, you know, they were put in the oven too long, which are ex- my experiences yeah. as a kid. Yeah. Right. Sorry I need laugh, them to I've understand. Well, yeah, these are kids that have, you know, said those things to other kids and also to me. And so um, I just want them to have a true reason and, you know, the scientific rationale behind the beauty of their brown skin. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm just kind of exploring that and, helping them, which means I know that I can help other kids kind of understand um, the beauty of their, of their blackness. I I have been wondering about um, what advice, I'll be frank, this is personal for me. So, right. Like um, what, what advice or ways do you use, particularly with teachers, right. To, to help them think about the ways in which teaching in an anti-racist fashion means we need to think beyond what I tend to hear is in terms of this knee-jerk reaction, well, well, my field doesn't talk about that, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And I, I don't like want to pick on my, like, I don't have that problem, like, in my institution per se. I actually have, this, this actually came up because I had a, a science colleague who said, I don't know what to say when I go to conferences and people say, <laughs> my field well, we, we don't deal with racism, right? Like, go ask your sociology department. Yeah, um, yeah. that's... Um, so I have a couple of responses depending on how the question is asked in my classes. And I oftentimes ask my students, like, how many times a day do you use math? Or where does math kind of exist in your world on a day-to-day basis? As much as y'all love to run to Starbucks, you're looking to see how much credit you have on your card and how much that, you know, latte, latte, blah, 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 costs, right? So you're doing math all the time. Well, the same thing applies for race. Like race exists in everything and everywhere. Um, it is this social construct that was created, Um that exists. And it's unfortunate that people say that race may not exist in their field. They're just not asking the right people. Um, <laughs> or, you know, the the field itself might be missing those people, right? Those people of color, other um, people who may have been marginalized. And so I, you know, sometimes just turn the question around, like, well, who who are you listening to? Who are you asking this question to? I I enjoy history as well. And so, you know, trying to turn people to, let's look at the historical context. Nothing in our country has existed without race. Like it was created for our country to make money essentially. And so we have to, like, it, it cannot exist. Like, Races ex- exists everywhere. There is no place mm-hmm. where race does not exist. 
in all of the systems that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think that some people just have um, the privilege of not having to think about it. And you made it making that comment about, you know, racism exists everywhere. Race exists everywhere. I want to give you a a chance. You know, one of the resources that you shared with us uh, was with um, Education Week, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a something that both you and our colleague, uh, Aaron, Dr. Aaron Miller responded to. And you're talking about different mistakes that teachers may make. And the first one, you know, really stood out to me. And I know what you and I've talked about this a lot about the idea of colorblindness. Yeah. Um, can you kind of, I mean, I could easily share this. Someone say, Hey, go read this, but I would love to just, if you don't mind kind of expand on that a little bit and why, what is the danger of the future teachers that you and I both prepare since we're in the same program of them coming to that approach. Cause that's probably something that they've heard, especially since the overwhelming majority of our students are white. Yeah. They've probably heard that. And Absolutely. they've probably heard that, you know, a safe thing for you to say is I don't see color, you know, cause I, I remember hearing that and, I do. you know, yep. and that, you know, you would say, oh, well, I don't see color. I see beyond that. Hmm. And it's just, so what do you say to them? Like, how do you help them? Um, I start with where, where did you learn that? Right. So like who, who taught you to not see color and my end game, like my end goal for starting that conversation is to help white people understand that they also are racialized because in a lot of families, a lot of white families, I will speak to my friends. Um, I don't want to generalize, but well, it's also in, in the literature um, that white white families don't have conversations about race because they don't see themselves as being racialized because they're normalized, right? Um, and so just kind of helping them see again how they have been socialized as a young child, you know, from their youth to not really um, acknowledge race, not not see for themselves that they too have a race, but then also a culture that is associated with their race. Um, and, you know, hearing them tell stories of, you know, at school or something, they'll say like, oh, such and such, like they're, they're black or mommy, their skin is brown or, and you know, what happens is that the kids are shush, shush, shush. no, we don't talk about that. Right. And so, again, kids are being socialized to not have these conversations. And, you know, after a while, it it begins to be connected and associated with shame and guilt. Like I'm at this. This must be a bad topic. I'm not supposed to talk about it. So Mm -hmm. then I just don't talk about it. And so, you know, as they get older, having conversations, but still not making the connections to race, I think it's just a logical jump to think that, well, if I'm colorblind, I won't say the wrong thing. I, you know, I just see the heart of people, but then I have to tell them as I'm standing in front of them, like, how can you not see my skin tone and my hair? It is distinctively different than yours. You, how can you not see my skin tone? It is different than yours. I need you to see my Blackness because how are you going to teach me if you don't see me, right? I don't want to be lumped in uh, together as just the rest of the class. I need to be identified because then that means that you are personalizing what you're teaching to align to who I am. And so just kind of helping them understand that colorblindness is, is not a not a good thing, but it also takes work to kind of undo years of, right. oh, yeah. you know, being told to be colorblind, to, you know, told to not discuss race. You don't want to say the same wrong thing. You don't want to be considered to be racist. Um, you know, so just helping them unpack that um, in a way that, Really, it just, I want them to think about how they were raised so that there isn't a, you know, I don't want them to get to a point where they're saying, well, you were just raised wrong because that's that's not it at all. But the way that we were raised is the way that we became socialized to think about race. So let's take steps back. Let's kind of unpeel um, our identity to make sure that we are 
tapping into the root of how we learn to think about people. Mm-hmm. All right. So now that we've gotten to the root, let's let's learn some new things and let's add to and re- kind of rebuild the idea of of racial identity and race and anti-racism in a way that um, you can see people for who they are and then adjust or act accordingly based on who people are. Well, it makes me think about, and I know Tia, you know, I've talked a lot about this. The one, the one of the activities I do at the very beginning of the year is the draw a scientist activity where I have everyone draw yeah. someone who they view as a scientist and any of my science people out there listening. Yes. I know there are issues with that, but, but beside the point, it's um, a start and yeah, it is. And so, um, it, and you know, after I have them draw it and I, you know, I have a great prompt for them and stuff and, um, and I make sure the, the, the prompt, the language is very gender neutral, race neutral. It's just draw this person doing this, draw, you know, that kind of stuff. I then afterwards have them turn it over and ask them to identify the gender of the individual that they uh, pictured in the race. And then I pause for a second. And then there's always, I always then add the caveat. Don't say, well, I wasn't thinking of race. So because we all know you were. And I will even say there are friends and colleagues of mine in my department who will look right at you and say, that's not possible. So Mm -hmm. write down what, what it is you, you envisioned. Um, and yes, predominantly it's always white men that they draw. Um, it's changed some, but it's, it's, I do it specifically to help them see, you know, what that bias is that they have that initial thought. And then how is it that they can move past that to help their future students and why is it a problem for them to think that way and then also their own students to think that way and it just helps them wake up helps them realize that oh i didn't even think of it like that so you know and again it it really just boils back down to how we were socialized right the the producers of our uh curriculum of you know our science textbooks our math textbooks you know the the posters that go in classrooms, all of that contributes to how we are socialized, how we begin to think about what we see, like who's present, but then now reversing that to who is not present, like who is missing in the textbook, who's missing on the wall, whose stories are, you know, are just not present in whatever it is that we're learning. And um, it's wonderful that students, you know, even just get to that point of, then beginning to uh, be able to identify it for themselves. Like, wait a minute, I learned about such and such, but, you know, X, Y, and Z are are missing in this story. So, you know, that just helps them to get a full picture, the full story of, um, you know, whatever content that they're learning. Yeah, the the finding the lack, I think is really, is is valuable. Um, You know, and I'll sort of be, be honest, be honest there too, in Judaism, there are a couple of things that I wanted to say. In American Judaism, it's this Ashkenormative idea um, that Jews are the stereotypes that you got from Nazi Germany, right? The Their skin tone is white. They, they're generally slight builds, large ears, large nose, and dark hair. Right. Like that's that's an Ashkenormative centric idea of what a Jew looks like. But their Judaism and Jews are not monolithic either. And how in how then in each of our in our locations, our synagogues, our uh, community centers, can we look at a black person who comes to our doors and and welcome them as a Jew without the question of did you convert? Um mm. Are you here by mistake? Like what? And just being like, cool, welcome. Like, so glad you're here. And then if we get to know that person, to welcome them in and see the other parts to them, right? Yes. To see to see the intersectionality of mm-hmm. what is your Blackness and your Jewishness and 
if you're a woman, that extra piece. It's like all of these layers because none of these things live in isolation and in a vacuum. Um, and to see a person in all those ways, but to, to, to acknowledge that there is nothing, there is nowhere in life that is completely monolithic. I love that word. And there was, there was a, a book done. Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, 15 ish years ago. I, I, I have to actually. 2008. So since 2020 has been forever, that is about 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> it's called um, The Torah, A Woman's Commentary. Didn't try to make The Torah, the five books of Moses, a women's book. It's not a feminist book. It's saying, okay, where's the lack? Where are these other voices? Right? We know, we know what, we know what, old white dead guys have been saying for 2000 years what are women saying where what were women saying in the text okay oh she's got a name let's see it and so how can you know i think i think that's our same challenge with blackness mm-hmm. um and i'm just i'm just i'm being i'm intentionally being respectful so please tell me if i'm i'm not using the words that you're using mm-hmm. um that okay so we see you as a whole person and now let's see this other layer um, so I had that that was one thought. A second thought that I had as you were talking is I I was listening to NPR. And so I have no idea what show this was on. I have a feeling it might have been um I really have no idea, so I'm not gonna say it was somewhere in NPR. I think there's an eager anticipation for all of us to jump in and like be able to name which show it was on first. Yeah, okay. <laughs> This feels like a a contest. It's a a challenge. Yeah. Um, I'm ready. Good. (laughs) And go. So they were talking to Isabel Wilkerson about her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Um, And it... Yeah. uh, There you go, Adam. All right. Yeah. Go for it. you now. Okay. Um, This book came officially came out two days ago so it's it's hot off the presses but i was just listening to her and this concept of caste it's fascinating um to apply that to what's going on to what is and has been going on in america Mm -hmm. and bridging that with your statement that even being white is a race a racial construct because people who came here whose skin was white did not see themselves as white. They saw themselves as Irish or English or German mm-hmm. or Russian or whatever, but now they're all lumped together as white. Yeah. Um which definitely has an issue when the Germans came to America to study how terribly we treated black people in the nineteen twenties and they looked at they looked at us and went, Wow. You think Jews are white? What? <laughs> that's, that's weird. Um, because that's that was their caste system. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of want to hear your take on, you know, the, the verbal vomit that I just did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, I have not. I just ordered the book myself. Okay. Um, I am waiting for it with bated breath to, to arrive at my door so I can um, <laughs> to read it because I really enjoyed her other book um, The Warmth of Other Suns which is a really good book it actually phenomenal um, so that's my mother's generation she was a part of that great migration so just to, to read it and wow. then hear my mom and dad's stories about you know the migration um, so yeah we have we have, we definitely have a caste system, I think, in our country, and it looks a lot of different ways. You know, it's gendered. It is um, based on race. It is based on social class, right? Um, we can look at our schools. We can look at, you know, just really all the systems. We can look at our healthcare. We, we, can, we can look at all the things, right, and see how everyone is not getting first-class treatment, because everyone is not seen as uh, first class, right? Again, going back to my point earlier, um, we just have a real issue with treating everyone regardless of their race or their gender um, or other intersections of identity with humanity and dignity. Um, we just have a we have a we have an issue with that. 
And so going back to um, your other thought or your other point about um, when Europeans immigrated to the U.S., right? And the goal was to assimilate to whiteness because that then means that you are a part of a different class, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that if I am in this group, then I can then oppress or I know that I am better than the other group. Um, And so people do not, oh, I wish I could get this quote. Um, I'm definitely going to say it wrong, but people will not um, assimilate to things either right or wrong, right? If it is good or bad, unless they see the benefit, right? So if I am, you know, Europeans came over and assimilated to whiteness because there was a benefit, that means that I am no longer the lower class. That means that, you know, I am not the one being oppressed. It is the Africans and Mm African-Americans who are being oppressed. And so let me figure out another way to divide myself, to separate myself from that lower class or lower caste based on um, Wilkerson's book so that I get access to all the advantages and privileges and benefits of being white. So I'm, I'm curious, and this is a, I want to poke a little bit. Um, <laughs> people get mad at me when I poke at them, but I, I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious because I, I'm really intrigued by the fact that you have used, to my mind, as I've been listening to you, I, I hear you using words like empathy and dignity a lot, right? That these become mm-hmm. the strategies that we use. And, and I think I'm on board with empathy. Let me just say, I, I like empathy. I'm even, even I'm okay with that. But I, I think one of the things that I've been personally struggling with, both in my research but also in my teaching, is a frustration with dignity. Um, mm-hmm. That I wonder, is it a failed form of moral discourse? We've used empty rhetoric and language of human dignity for a long time, and it's led us to where we are now. So what is it about dignity that's going to get us out of this problem if it's already put us here? So I think that um, that goes back to one of our earlier points about being non-racist is passive Mm -hmm. and anti-racist is active. And so, again, I think empathy and dignity and humanity are actions. Mm. You show people that you have uh, empathy or, you know, you see their humanity, you acknowledge their dignity. It is an act um, as opposed to, you know, thoughts and prayers or I have dignity for that person, but you just, (laughs) you, you know, for kids, you, you just sent them to timeout. You isolated them. You've moved their desk as far away from you as physically possible, right? That is not, showing dignity to a child, Mm. you know? So I think it goes back to, it goes back to action. We have in this country talked a really good game, but we know historically and contemporarily um, that those are two different things. Like we can say it, but our actions don't equate to the words that we have used. Um, There's lots of commentary out right now. Um, I'll just like focus on sports teams right now, you know, we had racial injustice has existed in this country as long as this country has been around, right? And so you have uh, professional athletes who are kneeling or who are wearing um, shirts that say, I can't breathe or Black Lives Matter, so on and so forth, um, because they actually want the systems to change. That is just a representation of it. And so now you have, again, I'll just stick with sports teams as something that is fairly, I'm doing air quotes, neutral. Uh, (laughs) But you have sports teams that are, well, we'll we'll donate some money. 
We'll put Black Lives Matter on the court. We'll do all of these different things that kind of show you that we're really about the work. But then none of the systems within that organization have changed. And so that goes back to, you know, it is more lip service than action or the action that will change the least amount of that system. Right. right. Um, so a little discomfort, not a lot of discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, if I truly am enacting empathy and humanity and dignity towards someone who might be completely different from me, I'm going to have to do both big and small things to show you that I hear what you're saying. I see that these are the needs that you, um, that need to be met. And then like, just do it. (laughs) Right. I don't need all of the, I don't need all the performative things. Just do what I am telling you. I need you to fix the things that are harming me. And that takes work. That takes internal work. That takes external work. And you just have folks who are not not willing to to do it. And that's that's really unfortunate. So it made me think when you're talking about just just do it, you know, so the kneeling, you know, uh, I noticed uh, when um, the English Premier League started back up again, that at least initially the back of their jerseys didn't have their names that had Black Lives Matter on it. Those such things. So I mean, it's trying to draw attention, like you were saying, but they need to go the next step. So, you know, I've heard many naysayers say, well, is the next the next step then that we just need to give a person a ton of money or something? You, you know what I mean? Like they then go to that extreme negative of what those next steps are. So what do you think in your own professional opinion could be those next steps? We could go back to the analogy you're using. But we could also talk about teachers too, an education system. Like what are those next steps? Yeah. So I think ultimately for all of us, um, we have to start with our own internal work. We have to think about um, how we were raised, how we were socialized, and what are the ways that we have to think about um, the gaps that may exist in our own knowledge, right? We don't know it all, but the gaps that exist or the ways that we were socialized could be doing harm to, you know, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. We have to look at ourselves, how, you know, even track your own data in your classrooms, who's getting reprimanded, who's getting praised, who's Mm -hmm. getting suspended, you know, Mm -hmm. who is getting the benefit of the doubt even, right? Who is, you know, just getting punished without the same type of recourse that other kids are getting? Um, Whose curriculum exists? Who, you know, do my kids get to see themselves on a daily basis in what I'm teaching? Do they get to see others on a daily basis in what I'm teaching? So I think a lot of it boils down to us and what we know um, but then also what we don't know and then pursuing more of what we don't know to expand our knowledge so that it can then exist in our classrooms. Which is not, when you're talking about internally, looking at yourself internally, that's a challenge, obviously. But yes. the examples you were talking about, even earlier with curriculum resources, it's not that hard. No. I remember your, your efforts... Th- with helping me look at ways I can improve my course, you know, talked about the activity that I've always done, but other ways of doing things. And I remember when I was first talking with you about approaching it, it was like, I was thinking of these really like super hard things. Like I don't, again, go into that extreme, right. Of, well, I have to do this, this, this. And I wasn't against, I just didn't know how to do it. And then you just kind of step back and so little, like here's something little you can do that will have a profound impact on, on others. Right. Yeah. So as you were saying earlier, the books you have, you know, if it's all books of, uh, you know, for children and it's all a bunch of white kids in every single book, there are other books out there that <laughs> yes. show other children yes. <laughs> that look differently, you know, and um, there are great books on there that are coming out now more recently in the past decade or so of like science books of scientists who were not white yes, and who were not men. Uh, yeah. So it's like. There are options. We just, people need to know where to find them because sadly they're not as promoted. They're available. They're just not as promoted as the other options. Sure. 
Yeah. I think we just start with our own little, start with our own, you know, microsystem. Start at home, start with yourself. And then as you build your own capacity um, for, you know, knowledge, you build your own capacity of more information, then you just slowly expand it. It doesn't have to be the big, uh, you know, grandiose projects in class, but just start with representation in the classroom. Do your Mm -hmm. kids see themselves? And even if they are, you know, 100% white, do your kids see other kids, right? Mm -hmm. It it doesn't have to be um, this big cumbersome thing because the the other part is that we we have to build our skill set. We have to build that muscle um, because there will always be some form of resistance if it's from parents or, you know, administrators, it could be other teacher colleagues, there's always going to be some resistance. And so you have to build your muscle, which is why you start small, get in good practice, build your sense of efficacy with that, you know, that one part. And then you expand. I, um, when I'm coaching teachers, I'm like, pick one lesson plan and just make that lesson plan better. All right. You got it. It went well. It didn't go well. How could you fix it? All right, move to the next lesson plan. All right, let's mm-hmm. go to a unit. Let's expand that for the month. Let's expand that for the right. quarter. And then you move to the, you know, so it's, you have to start small because um, the other point that I want to make before is we are um, done is that we have to maintain a sense of hope. Um, hope that we can make a difference as individuals and that hope that we can make a difference collectively. But if we start with the big grandiose, let's just, you know, we've got to fix the whole system. We've got to do all the stuff like right now, all of it, that that's exhausting. That is um, overwhelming. It's intimidating. But what I can do is start with one kid in my classroom, with one book in my home, um, and then expand that. And so that gives me the sense of efficacy that gives me confidence, that gives me practice, that gives me, you know, building my endurance, that helps me build my muscle to then expand. And then I find other folks who are doing similar work and then we connect and then we find more folks and then we connect. Mm -hmm. And so then it does begin to expand to the point where we can um, impact some of the systems, some of the micro systems, but it could be some of the um, meso and macro systems that we, you know, eventually um, begin to change, but it starts with us. It starts with yeah. us, especially as adults. We know the types of kids we want to to raise, and so we start at home. Or if you don't have kids, it starts with your nieces and nephews, or the kids that you're tutoring, or the you know the kids in your youth group. You're around kids at some point in time, mm-hmm. right? And so, what ways are we, um, you know, just influencing our kids, socializing them to think about? others in a way that, again, impacts the dignity, the humanity, and builds some empathy for um, others who may or may not look like us. I love your use of hope, by the way, because if you notice, Adam smirked when you said hope, because he's the more pessimist of all of us. He doesn't have enough of it. So... I sprinkled it like salt. Bay. That's right. That's there right. You, you certainly... That's why I went into administration. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say he presents himself that way. I'm just gonna <laughs> he presents himself as this pessimist. But when you learn more about Adam and his and his wife and the the efforts they've gone to and the protests they go to and the things they fight for, you realize, OK, that's his persona. I, I, I will. Yeah. I will say this, which you may not understand. And, and so please excuse the inside joke here. But that that was possibly the most compelling version I've heard of the starfish story. Uh, and um, I. That was pretty good. That's that's all I'm going to say there. That was yeah, yeah. I, I was, will take it. Was good. Yes, thank you. And on behalf of all of us, um, thank mm-hmm. you for taking your time. Thank you for opening your sliding glass door to let us walk in for a little bit, and for all of us listeners. And you know, really just appreciate everything that you're doing and giving us a slice of that. We can all do something. So thank yes. you, thank you for that. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. This has been episode 51 of the Down the Wormhole podcast and the first full episode without me. Eh, But that's all right. 
That's the beauty of being on a team. There's always someone there to pick you up the slack when you're not around. Speaking of teamwork, we've got a big celebration coming up in a few days. We are celebrating our one-year podcast anniversary this Friday, August 21st, from 4 to 5 Eastern Time. We will be live streaming our beautiful faces on Facebook and YouTube, so you can find it in either place or at our website at downthewormhole.com. This episode is a celebration of you, our listeners. So we are going to answer all of your burning questions of science and faith and culture and education and dinosaurs and ice cream or whatever you're into. So hit us up on Facebook or Twitter or leave them in the chat during the show. Thank you all so much for your support over the past year. And I'll see you on Friday.